Hello everyone and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Anil Harrison, who is the Program Director and Chair of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Central Florida and HCA Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Today, Dr. Harrison and Dr. Paul Shu will discuss the management of patients with hypertension. Dr. Shu is an internal medicine resident at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Stockton, California. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or the views of Consultant 360. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Dr. Harrison. Good morning, Paul. See, now we can have some fun and talk about some interesting cases. And uh, But before we talk about cases, we have to follow up on what we last talked about. So as a refresher, we left off on how hyperaldosteronism, and now we're moving into, drum roll please. Actually, we can't tell them. We have to give them a case. Okay. So we have a, uh, a young chap, strolls into your office, Dr. Harrison, mm-hmm. he's having this headache, and he tells you that this headache, he gets every, every, every once in a while. There's no rhyme or reason, this happens. Mm-hmm. And associated with the headache is this, this profuse sweating. Mm-hmm. It's diaphoretic. It feels anxious. It feels his palpitations. Mm-hmm. Kind of feels like me when I walk into the clinic. Okay. But one thing is, I'm, I'm not on multiple antihypertensives. Dr. Harrison, what do you think this uh, young lad has? I think, Paul, you're alluding to pheochromocytomas. However, Pheochromocytomas are rare catecholamine secreting neoplasms of the renal medulla or the sympathetic ganglia that occur in less than 0.2% of patients with hypertension. Hmm. And as you know, diagnostic tests include plasma, fractionate metanephrines, and 24-hour urine metanephrines and catecholamines. So it's rare. Have we seen some? Yes, I have. Just a few months ago, we had a patient with hyperhidrosis, sweating profusely all the time with hypertension and with anxiety. And one thing led to another, Paul, and yeah, her metanephrines and normetanephrines were elevated in, and she had fear and she underwent surgery and lo and behold, her hyperhidrosis went away, her high blood pressure went away. And anxiety is much better. Life-changing. Absolutely life-changing. Less than 0.2%, folks. So we're moving on to what happens? What happens if we don't treat hypertension? How how do they fit into uh, these buckets we call urgency, emergency, these talks about an organ damage? How does that fit in? What about, you know, different population, you know, the the demographics, the elderly, women, and uh, different ethnic groups? Dr. Harrison, would you uh, start us off with hypertensive urgency, please? Sure. So, Paul, hypertensive urgency is defined as very elevated blood pressures, you know, systolic blood pressure more than 180, 180, and or a diastolic blood pressure that is more than 110 millimeters of mercury without obvious signs or symptoms of acute or impending target organ damage or dysfunction. Because if a person has that, has end organ damage, then you classify it as a hypertensive emergency. 
So patients with hypertensive urgency, they're usually asymptomatic or might have you know, fatigue and a mild headache. When you manage patients with hypertensive urgency, of course, it includes the assessment of imminent risk of cardiovascular events from severe hypertension versus the risk of adverse sequela from rapid blood pressure reductions, which could include acute renal insufficiency, myocardial infarction, strokes, organ dysfunction. So therefore, the blood pressure has to be brought down gradually. 25% reduction within the first hour. Then you get the blood pressure below 160 over 100 over the next two to six hours, and then cautiously to normal in the next 24 to 48 hours. So what can you use? Faster acting agents, antihypertensive agents such as oroclonidine can be given to lower blood pressures. Remember, in patients in whom hypertensive urgency developed because of medication non-adherence, you can start the antihypertensive very slowly in a stepwise fashion with care not to drop the blood pressure significantly. So a close follow-up is necessary and further management can include home monitoring of blood pressures. As opposed to hypertensive emergencies where there is evidence of end organ damage, be it you know the person has an ischemic or a hemorrhagic stroke or has altered mental status because of encephalopathy or has acute renal insufficiency or has had an MI or heart failure and aortic dissection. So those would be hypertensive emergencies and these patients need to be admitted in the intensive care unit. And these folks, you have to get the systolic blood pressure below 140 millimeters of mercury very, very soon. And if a person is dissecting the aorta, you need to get the systolic blood pressure below 120 millimeters of mercury. So the other question you asked was, you know, about uh, hypertension in women. Now, women, particularly if premenopausal, are at a lower risk than men for hypertension complications such as coronary artery disease, stroke, and left ventricular hypertrophy. Clinical trials suggest that women derive similar relative benefits from antihypertensive treatment as men. And therefore, the recommendations for blood pressure targets are the same for men and women. But remember, women of childbearing age who anticipate pregnancy should not be prescribed ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or direct renin inhibitors because of a risk of urogenital developmental abnormality. So what can you use? You can use methyl dopa, nifedipine, labetalol. These are reasonable choices. In black patients with diabetes, a thiazide diuretic or a calcium channel blocker is recommended as initial therapy. Now, how about folks with diabetes? The ADA, the American Diabetes Association, recommends that patients with diabetes and hypertension with a 10-year ASCVD risk that is less than 15% should be treated to a blood pressure goal of 140 over 90. A lower target of 130 over 80 is appropriate for individuals who have a risk, ASCVD risk, that is more than 15%. And if this can be achieved safely, then that is great. Now, the American Heart Association and the uh, ACC, the American College of Cardiology, they recommend getting the systolic blood pressures below 130 millimeters in the elderly. However, other organizations say, well, 
getting it below 150 millimeters of mercury is also reasonable. I would actually rather go with the ACC or the AHA because one of the concerns with the other organizations was don't get the blood pressures below 130 systolic because there's a high risk of presyncope and falls, et cetera, et cetera. The studies have been conducted and really there hasn't been much of an evidence that that actually happens. What I would recommend is get their systolic blood pressure below 130 millimeters of mercury gradually and look out to see how are they feeling? Are they significantly fatigued? Are they getting lightheaded? But more importantly, check their renal functions to make sure that, you know, their renal functions are not deteriorating because of uh, hypoperfusion. So once again, what we're hearing here is that we have three organizations, two organizations with a a recommendation for less than 130. And then you have another organization that recommends a slightly less uh, aggressive, yeah, stringent, a little bit more um, conservative of less than 150. Now, of course, uh, as we all know, uh, guidelines are guidelines and uh, it represents a starting point. Ultimate uh, decision rests upon your shoulders and uh, you need to take into account the patient's comorbidities, uh, previous history of falls, so on and so forth. Without further ado, I think we have built a solid foundation to tackle some uh, very specific case scenarios, some case scenarios which are not uncommon, and uh, you will see how and about in clinic or on the wards. So we have a 20-year-old with consistently elevated blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90, over the course of six months, mm-hmm. what would you do? So Paul, for a 20-year-old with consistently elevated blood pressures greater than 140 over 90, over a period of uh, six months, as you said, look into a family history and look for end organ damage. Upon my evaluation, I would be looking for you know things like abdominal or flank bruises uh, in that patient. And the other thing I would be looking for is, you know, could this person have renal artery stenosis secondary to fibromuscular dysplasia? You know, I'd probably do a non-invasive test like a duplex arterial ultrasound or a CTA or an MRA of the renal arteries. All right. Because if you find that, you know, you fix that and the hypertension disappears, hopefully. Hopefully. Correct. If not, then obviously you treat them with uh, your first line antihypertensives. Right. Okay. So then uh, what about a 45-year-old with consistently elevated blood pressure greater than 130 over 80 over the course of six months? So on this patient uh, who's 45 years old with blood pressures more than 130 over 80 consistently, the first thing I would do is calculate the ASCVD risk. If it's greater than 10%, I immediately start the person on first-line antihypertensives. And of course, have them continue with lifestyle modifications. And as we alluded to, first-line antihypertensives would be an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor uh, blocker or a thiazide diuretic or a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. And of course, once you start them on ACE or an ARB, in about two or three weeks, you check their uh, serum creatinine and the potassium. And monitor the blood pressures, I would say, in the next uh, two to four weeks. Eventually, mm-hmm. the blood pressure will be at goal, right? And for this patient, it'll be, I think you mentioned, well, I mean, mm-hmm. 130 over 80, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You have to try and get the blood pressure below 130 over 80. You're absolutely right. Okay. All right. Well, 
You talked about a 20 year old. We talked about a 45 year old. What about a 60 year old with a consistent elevated blood pressure of greater than 150 over 94? And uh, this is over a course of six months as well. Sure. So for this 60 year old with consistently elevated blood pressures of greater than 150 over 94, I would recommend, or it's been recommended to start two antihypertensives from different classes. And one of them, preferably either a thiazide diuretic or amlodipine. I would assess serum creatinine and potassium in two to three weeks and uh, have them monitor the blood pressures and see how it does in the next one month. Okay. How about, um, how about a 50-year-old with a blood pressure of 135 or 85? Yeah, just like the other one we spoke about, I would recommend doing an ASCVD score on this 50-year-old with consistently elevated blood pressures of 135 over 85. And if it's less than 10%, I would advise lifestyle changes for about three to six months and reassess with at-home blood pressure uh, that were monitored during this phase. But if the ASCVD score is greater than 10%, I would start this person on first-line antihypertensives as mentioned before. ACEs or ARBs or thiazide diuretics or uh, uh, calcium channel blocker like amlodipine. So how about, let's say the aforementioned patient now has, uh, in addition to being 50 years old, in addition to having high blood pressure, Mm -hmm. uh, what about if they were to have diabetes as well? Sure. So in this patient, you know, I would check a urine for microalbumin or do an ACR, uh, albumin creatinine ratio. If the patient has microalbuminuria, you have to start the patient on an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. If they don't have microalbuminuria, you could again go with an ACE inhibitor or an ARP, or you could put them on a thiazide diuretic or uh, something like amlodipine. So the goal is if they have microalbuminuria, they're at a very high risk for CAD. And so you want to target their blood pressure and also protect their kidneys and the heart with an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. So what about a 60 year old on three antihypertensives, consistent blood pressure of greater than 150 over 94? So this 60-year-old on three antihypertensives and the blood pressure is still elevated, I would call it resistant hypertension. And in this person, one of the antihypertensives has to be a thiazide diuretic. So the other one can be an ACE inhibitor, and the third one can be, let's say, amlodipine. When I'm thinking about adding the fourth antihypertensive, I would think of spironolactone. Let's try a 50-year-old with a blood pressure of greater than 180 over 110. So for a 50-year-old with blood pressures greater than 180 over 110, confirmed on two occasions, it is advised to look for end organ damage to classify it as urgent or emergent. If the patient has evidence of end organ damage in the form of altered mental status, stroke, MI, heart failure, dissection of the aorta, You want to get the blood pressure down to below 140 systolic as soon as possible. And if it's dissection of the aorta, you want the systolic blood pressure to be below 120 millimeters of mercury. If there is no evidence of end organ damage, then you bring the blood pressure down very gradually. 25% in the first hour, then 160 over 100 in the next four to six hours, 
and then normalize blood pressure over a period of 24 to 48 hours. Then what do you do about a 75-year-old with a blood pressure greater than 160 over 70? Well, the ACC, if you take the ACC and the American Heart Association recommendations, they recommend getting the blood pre- the systolic blood pressure below 130, while the other organizations, they recommend getting the systolic blood pressure below 140 millimeter, millimeters of mercury. So we're going to move on uh, forward to uh, a 30-year-old, and we have uh, three, three scenarios here. Uh, we have a 30-year-old pregnant female with consistently elevated blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90 at three months of gestation. And then we have a 30-year-old fe- a pregnant female with consistently elevated blood pressure of greater than 160 over 110 uh, at six months of gestation. And then finally, a 30-year-old female uh, consistently elevated blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90 three months after delivery. So... Based on guidelines from ACOG, blood pressures in pregnant women are not to be treated unless more than 160 over 110 millimeters of mercury. If there is evidence of elevated blood pressures prior to the fifth month of pregnancy, you call it hypertension. But if the blood pressure is elevated after the fifth month, then this is termed gestational hypertension. With gestational hypertension, blood pressure should normalize 8 to 12 weeks postpartum. If they do not normalize, then this is termed as chronic hypertension. Treatment, as mentioned, Paul, alpha-methyldopa or labetalol or nifedipine would be the preferred agents. And definitely no ACEs, no ARBs, and no renin inhibitors in pregnant women. And the goals for treating hypertension in pregnant women is to keep systolic blood pressures between 120 and 159 millimeters and the diastolic between 80 and 109 millimeters of mercury. So that's a quite a big departure Correct. from non-pregnant patients. Correct. And then speaking of non-pregnant patients, there's a grace period, so eight to 12 weeks postpartum. So in our example, mm-hmm. uh, this patient is right at the cusp of three months, which is 12 weeks. Correct. Um, okay. So you'd call this chronic hypertension then because yes. her blood pressures three months after delivery have not come down. So this would be hypertension. Right. Okay. So that is how we delineate hypertension folks. And uh, with this knowledge in your armamentarium, you can go tackle hypertension in all its various forms, shapes, and sizes. We are at the end of our podcast. This concludes the hypertension uh, series, part three. I want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in with us. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye. For more hypertension content, visit consultant360.com.